Welcome to the Sermon Podcast of Redeemer Church. Redeemer Church is located in Fate, Texas, and her mission is to share the gospel, shape disciples, and send missionaries into the surrounding communities and across the globe. We hope that this week's message will bring glory to God by building you up and results in you looking more and more like Jesus himself. church. One of them already knows. So this, at this time in our service is when we normally dismiss our kiddos who are third grade and under as one has already made its way out the back of the room uh, before that acknowledgement. Uh, but the McCabe's are in the back of the room. They'd love to take those kiddos down the hall for their Bible study as we open the scriptures here this morning and hear what the Lord has to say to us through his word. If you got a Bible with you this morning, turn with me to Colossians chapter 2 is where we're going to be this morning. Colossians chapter 2. If you're a guest with us, my name's Shannon. I'm one of the pastors here at Redeemer. We're glad that you've chosen to join us this morning. When you came in, you should have found a card somewhere around where you're seated. On one side of that card's a place for a little information about yourself. The other side of that card's a place for any prayer requests that you may have. And if you fill out that card, uh, we'd love to pray with you, pray for you, get you any information that you need. You can drop it at the kiosk in the back of the room. There's a box there. Just drop it in there on your way out today. If you are a guest with us, I just want to make you aware of something coming up in the life of our church. On July 23rd, uh, we will host a guest reception called Review, uh, which is a time for those who are visiting Redeemer to come and hear about our core values, meet some of our leadership, and ask any questions that you may have about our church. It'll be in room five, just on the other side of that wall on July 23rd, immediately following the service, and so we would invite you to join us for that. Uh, You can register online. If you go to our website, you can find a link there to register for that reception. But we're continuing our way through the book of Colossians this morning, Colossians chapter 2, verses 16 to 23, I'm sorry, I think we're not going backwards um, in reading, verses 16 to 23 is where we're going to be today, it'll be on the screen behind me, if you don't have a copy in front of you, you can follow along there as we read God's word together. Colossians 2, beginning in verse 16, reads, therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink. Or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used, according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. This is God's Word. Uh, Back in the day before people moved from place to place constantly, everyone trading up house to house to house to get their dream home, um, you might have found in some of those older homes, whenever you walked in the doors, uh, maybe a door door frame to the bathroom or the door frame to the bedroom, you might have found some markings on those door frames. 
And those markings were on those door frames, either in pencil or in ink, or maybe even carved in with a knife, and they were measuring the growth or maturation of the children who had been born and raised in those homes. Some of those homes were families lived for 20, 30, 40, 50 years without ever moving, and you walk in and you find, right, all the way from the baseboards up toward the header of the door, you would see these markings of the different children, their names written by the sides, maybe some of the years of the dates that they were recorded that way, because everyone wanted to measure and keep a record of the growth of their kiddos as they grew up. Now, we don't have any measurements like that in our home. I suspect probably many of you don't have measurements like that in your home either, Uh, but we all still measure maturation, don't we? Right, every time you take your children to the doctor for their annual visit, what do they do? They put them on the scale and they put them on the, 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 the whatever that thing is called, where they measure their height, right? And they, they're taking these measurements of them and they put them on the growth chart and they tell you what percentile they rank with regards to other children who are their age. Are they in the 25th percentile for height and the 25th percentile for weight, right? They measure those things, they give it to you on a document so you can take it home and you can have measurements of your child's maturation and the milestones and developmental markers that they're hitting over the course of their life. So physically, we still measure maturation. We still measure maturation intellectually, don't we? In the way that we examine kids in classrooms, whether it be in homeschool or whether it be in private school or whether it be in public school, you're measuring their intellectual maturation, right? From an early age, can they re- re- retain and regurgitate basic facts, right? One plus one equals three, okay? Right, can they, I'm just kidding, right? Can they retain those basic facts, but then also you're measuring their intellectual maturation as they move beyond basic regurgitation to facts to being able to reason and, and, and think through arguments and carry thoughts forward beyond just what they have received and build on them. So you're measuring intellectual maturation. So we measure physical and intellectual maturation, but listen, there's also a need within our lives to be able to measure spiritual maturation to know how far we've come and how far we still have to go, to measure how far we have developed spiritually. And so as we read Colossians chapter 2, verses 16 to 23, I'd like to tag this text with the title, Measuring Maturity, because I believe that's one of the big ideas that comes out of this passage as Paul writes to the church at Colossae. How do we measure our spiritual maturity? Now, a little context for you. On the heels of verses 8 to 15, where we were warned not to be taken captive by empty and deceptive philosophy, promising a fullness of spiritual experience to be found in something outside of Christ, as Stanley showed us last week, that Jesus is the pleroma, the fullness, that in Him are all the riches and treasures of God, that we don't need to look outside of Him, so it's not Jesus plus anything, not Jesus plus plus crystals, not Jesus plus shamans, not Jesus plus ancestors, not Jesus plus right any kind of philosophy that's circulating within the mainstream society. It's not Jesus plus anything because Jesus is the fullness. It's to be found in Him and Him alone. So Jesus, Paul goes on in verses 16 to 23 to warn us about letting anyone pass judgment on us or disqualify us according to man-made measures, measuring rods that are made by men and not by God. 
And so that's where we dive in this morning in this particular text, considering how do we measure spiritual maturity. And I got one point for you and one point only. Now, that doesn't mean the sermon's going to be short. It just means I only got one point. All right? And that one point is this, is that we measure maturity by growth in grace. We measure maturity by growth in grace. And let me, tell, let me unpack that for us this morning. See, there's a tendency within every human heart, and this is as a result of the fall, there's a tendency within every human heart to either stop short of what God has commanded or to go beyond what God has commanded. To do one of those two things, it's a tendency in every human heart, and it's an attempt to be in control of our lives. Okay? Either we don't want to submit to God's command, so we stop short of that because we want to be in control and do our own thing, or we go beyond what God has commanded because we want to ensure that we can be in control of our own lives. But if, and what I want you to notice with me for a minute is the language that's used in the passage and how it relates to that tendency. Because Paul here is not talking necessarily about those who stop short of God's commands, but he's talking about those who go beyond God's commands. Listen to what he says about these false teachers in Colossae. And this is perhaps in the, all, all the book of Colossians, the, most, the place where he gives the most information about the kind of teaching that he's combating as he writes this letter. He says that these false teachers, they were going beyond what God had said in questions of food or drink and matters of observing religious festivals and days. Second, they were advocating the worship of angels and promoting these ecstatic visions that they were having. Third, they were enforcing regulations regarding what you can and cannot touch, taste, or handle, but they were built, that was all built on human principles and teachings, he says. And then fourth, he says they were promoting what he calls a self-made religion that involved severe treatment of the body and asceticism. Now, one commentator said it this way. He says to summarize this very difficult verse, all right, and Stanley and Charles have both gone into great, in great detail about the, the, the false teaching and the Gnosticism and the Jewish backgrounds of some of these things as well. So I'm not going to go there. You can go back and listen to those messages. But I'm going to give you this summary of this one commentator. He says, we find them to be asserting, Paul to be asserting four things about these false teachers. First, they're concerned with calling on angels as a means of protection from evil forces insofar as that they are virtually worshiping these angelic beings. Second, they focus on visions that they have experienced, perhaps citing these often in their teachings and the things that they are dispensing. Third, they display, perhaps because of their boasting about visions and arrogance that reveals a worldly orientation. They're puffed up and swollen with pride because of the things they've seen or the things that they have experienced. And fourth, they put a great deal of stock in ascetic practices. And I saved that one for the last one because that's what I want to drill down on a moment for a little while this morning. Right, they put a great deal of stock in ascetic practices. Now, if you've never heard that word ascetic, it's essentially a, a, a descriptor of asceticism. And asceticism is mentioned twice in these verses, in verse 18 and verse 23. And somewhere along the way, somebody told me, if you see something repeated, there's probably often a good indication that there's an emphasis there. Now, asceticism, if you're going, what is that? Asceticism is a way of life that invo- involves extreme forms of self-denial. 
Right? Not just self-denial like Jesus says, if you want to come after me, you must deny your cross, take up yourself, or deny, deny yourself, <laughs> deny your cross, take up yourself. That's sin, okay? But you must deny yourself and take up your cross, all right? Listen, if you do what I do long enough, you're going to say some funny things, okay? You must deny yourself and take up your cross. It's not that kind of self-denial, but extreme forms of self-denial. And so when we hear the word asceticism, we might think of those who live in convents or monasteries, or we might even think of those who live in Pennsylvania, in Dutch country, the Amish, or even the Mennonites. Now listen, a few weeks ago, whenever my wife and I were on vacation with our children up in northwestern Arkansas, we kayaked the Buffalo River. If you've never seen the Buffalo River, it's a beautiful stretch of river. Gorgeous, right? And, and one of the reasons we love going there is because of all the natural beauty. That's Arkansas's claim to fame. They're the natural state, okay? But it's all this natural beauty. It's all in national forest land, so there's no development along the banks. There are no houses. There are no restaurants. There are no shops, and I love it. Okay? It's a place where you're out of cell phone service range. I also love that. All right? The water is crystal clear and beautiful, rocky substrate there. As you canoe or kayak or float down the river, you're going to see these places where the river, over the course of centuries, has cut into the banks, forming these really majestic bluff walls. And the waters of that river are full of smallmouth bass. It's another reason I love it. So we kayaked the Buffalo River and we happened to be putting in at the same time as a group of Mennonites who were floating the river together. Now, listen, I'm not here this morning to cast, cast stones or pass judgment. I'm just telling you what I observed, okay? So this group of Mennonites was there floating the river. They were all getting their canoes and getting ready to get in. But all the men, this is a 95 degree day okay, in northwestern Arkansas, and all the men were dressed in long pants, boots, and button-down shirts. All the women were wearing cape dresses. If you've ever seen a cape dress, okay, uh, it's got a neckline that's up around the throat and arms that oftentimes come down past the elbows. This long dress made of polyester material. Right, you can imagine on a 95-degree day floating the river Right, in a cape dress or jeans and a button-down shirt, like that is not comfortable. That seems to me, right, to be a little bit severe treatment of the body. Right? Some degree of a form of asceticism, right? S- extreme forms of self-denial. So whenever we think of asceticism, we might think of those types of instances. And you may say to yourself, hey, listen, I don't float the river in a cape dress or jeans. Right? When I go float the river, I wear a swimsuit, right? or I wear shorts and a t-shirt, and that's fine. But I'll tell you this, that some forms of asceticism can creep into every church and the life of every believer. Every believer. And I, and I say that they, they creep in, in in the form of what I would call hash marks. Okay? Now follow me for a moment. In the, in the game of football, there's all kinds of lines drawn on the field that regulate play. 
Okay, so you've got the yard lines that tell you how far you've gone down the field, right? You've got the, uh, the, the and then you've got the hash marks that are drawn on, uh, in, in between those yard lines, and then you've got the boundary lines that are drawn along the sidelines, okay? Then you've got the end zone markers. You've got all these lines that are drawn to regulate play. But if the, if the, if the ball carrier in a game of football is handed the ball behind the line of scrimmage, and he is at the center of the field, and he runs left, and he is not tackled before he goes out of bounds, right? He runs out of bounds, out of the si- across the sideline. When the game is reset for play, it's reset for play on the left hash mark, which in college football is about 60 feet, measured 60 feet from the, the sideline, right? And so it's not out of bounds, but in order to get out of bounds, you have to cross that hash mark to get to the sideline. Okay? Or on the right side, the same thing. In order to get out of bounds, you have to cross that hash mark to go out of bounds, to get to the sideline. And listen, oftentimes in life, there are many people who say, well, the sideline is what God has clearly revealed in his word. But in order to keep me from going out of bounds, I'm going to draw some hash marks. right? So that I know that if I stay inside those hash marks, I will never cross out of bounds. And we do this in all kinds of areas of our lives. Let me give you a couple of examples. In Ephesians 5.18, we read this. Do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. Now, the clear teaching of this verse is, 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 is that drunkenness is prohibited. Paul's point seems to be, right, that our behavior ought to be dictated not by an intoxicating substance, but rather by the indwelling spirit, right? Be under the control and authority of the Holy Spirit. Now, some people take what Paul says there and they say, well, listen, if drunkenness is the sideline, it's out of bounds, then I'm going to draw a hash mark and I'm going to say you can't touch, you can't taste, and you can't handle alcohol, Right, because that would, might lead me to intoxication or drunkenness. But that's not what God says. God says drunkenness is out of bounds, not touching, tasting, or handling alcohol. Right? And so the, the, the problem is people will draw those kinds of hash marks, and then they will measure their spiritual maturity, right? not by obedience to God's clear commands, but by their keeping of their own hash marks or the hash marks of their community. Now, if we want to be clear about everything else the scriptures say about alcohol, if we're to be faithful to it, then we've got to read Psalm 104, where the psalmist enumerates a multitude of reasons for which God is to be blessed. And in verses 14 and 15, he writes, You cause the grass to grow for the livestock. You feed them. And plants to cultivate that we may eat and bring forth food from the earth and wine to gladden the heart of man, oil to make his face shine and bread to strengthen his heart. So the psalmist is saying one of the reasons God is to be blessed is because he's given us the fruit of the vine, which if you mash up and you put into, bo- into barrels and, and let it ferment, it becomes wine that gladdens man's heart, brings us a degree of joy in life as we celebrate what God has given and enjoy the fruit of the vine. And yet, there are those who would draw that hash mark and say, hey, listen, you measure maturity not by whether or not you are able to consume in moderation and not move toward intoxication, but you measure maturity by whether or not you have ever had it on your lips. This is one example. Now, these hash marks, let me just say this, particularly with regards to this one. 
okay? It may be very wise for some people, right? If you have a history of addiction, or if you have a family history of addiction, right? You may draw that hash mark and say, hey, that's out of that I'm not going there because I, I know that if I go there, it's gonna lead me down a path that will be destructive in my life of disobeying God and perhaps wrecking my life upon the shores of a very tumultuous ocean. All right, so it may be very wise to draw that hash mark, but what we cannot do is draw that hash mark for us and then measure everyone, everyone else's maturity by whether or not they live within our hash marks. Is anybody with me? All right. Let me give you another example. Some create hash marks in the realm of entertainment and music and art. And they measure spiritual maturity themselves and others by whether or not their favorite producer, director, musician, or artist is a believer. All right, how many, how many Christian t-shirts are in my closet, okay, that I can wear? And listen, we make a lot of them around here. How many scripture verses are on the wall of my home or the ratio of Christian labeled music to secular labeled music on our playlist on Spotify or iTunes or whether or not you've seen Facing the Giants, Fireproof, Courageous, and Flywheel, right? So if you've seen all those movies, then you must be a mature believer. It's a hash mark. Some create hash marks in the realm of possessions and measure their spiritual maturity in themselves and others by how much or how frequently they give. And these hash marks in the realm of possessions, they can produce one of two things, either a false sense of guilt, not allowing you to enjoy the things that God has blessed you with, or they create a false sense of righteousness, saying, hey, I've given, I've sacrificed, right? God should accept me because of all that I have given. Still others create hash marks in the realm of clothing and dress and they pass judgment on others because they wear hoodies and shorts to church rather than dresses and slacks. See, for every person or every tribe or every type of church there may be, there can be a new set of hash marks that they, people measure maturity by. Now the irony with these hash marks, listen, is that those things that were created by people these man-made regulations that may have been created to protect themselves, they can end up destroying the people they were created to protect. See, some people have developed such a distaste for the church because they've been judged not by the word of God, but by someone else's man-made regulation, not the sideline, but with a hash mark. And so it's created this distaste in their mouth for the church. In, in addition, those who create and enforce them, they're destroyed by their own pride at times. Because Paul's going to go on to say later in verse 18 that those who measure maturity by these hash marks, by these ascetic practices, they're puffed up without reason by their sensuous minds. They promote false humility in verse 23, and they're a self-made religion. Those who measure spiritual maturity consistent with them, listen, they cannot help but become proud they end up boasting in them and the only thing that we are to boast in as believers is the Lord is the Lord we boast in the gospel we boast in the work of Christ not in the regulations that we've been able to establish and keep now let's talk about why we ought to measure maturity by growth and grace and not by our hash marks and I think Paul gives us five reasons here. These are not points, they're just support. <laughs> See how that works? 
First, no man-made hash mark can disqualify someone that God Himself has qualified. Remember back in Colossians chapter 1, verse 12, where we're told to give thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. Listen, church, if you are in Christ, if you've experienced the redeeming work of Christ, God has done something for you and in you that no man can strip away from you by their man-made regulations. If God has qualified you, Paul says, let no one disqualify you by their hash marks. Second, I told you they're just support, they're not main points. Everything else is a shadow while Christ is the substance. See, in verse 16, Paul warns us not to let anyone pass judgment on us regarding what we eat, what we drink, or what religious days we observe. And then in verse 17, he tells us why. He says, these are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Now, if you go back into the Old Testament, you take the ceremonial purity laws, which I, I believe Paul may be referring to here. The ceremonial purity laws in the Old Testament, they were there to show how seriously God takes sin and how much God requires purity of his people. However, the laws that were in place about ceremonial washings and cleansings and what had to be done on certain days, all those things that the people observed, they could never provide the purity they symbolized. They could never provide the cleanliness they were a foreshadow of. They can never purge our hearts, cleanse our minds, or purify our souls. That's why Paul says they were but a shadow of the substance of the cleanliness that is ours in Christ. In the Gospels, you see Jesus, as he's going about his ministry, he comes into contact with people who were ceremonially unclean, some of them because of their diseases like leprosy, and he would come into contact with them and he would touch them. And what would happen whenever he touched them? Their uncleanness was not transferred to him, but his cleanness was transferred to them. And they became whole. It's a picture of the kind of healing that Christ is able to bring in our lives. In Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 to 23, we read, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. So Jesus is able to make us clean. In Revelation 19, when Jesus returns triumphantly, you see that it was granted to the bride, the church, to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and pure, symbolizing her cleanliness, her purity in Christ. All of this back in the Old Testament, all the ceremonial law, all the ceremonial cleanliness and purity was but a shadow of the substance that is in Jesus that God through him is able to make us clean. Everything else is shadow, substance is in Christ. Third, the flesh, listen, is powerless against the flesh. Hmm. The flesh is powerless against the flesh. In verses 20 and 21, Paul asks a simple and yet very profound question. 
Why do you submit to regulations according to human precepts and teachings? And then in verse 23, he says, listen, they have this appearance of wisdom, but in actuality, they are of no value in restraining, stopping, putting an end to the indulgence of the flesh. You see, what these false teachers were promoting was that through their ascetic practices, through their ascetic practices, they could take care of the flesh. Right? Because if you think of it this way, they, they could put a restraint on the sinful nature. They could put a restraint on our sinful impulses. Right, because it's especially attractive to think, right, that if temptation is, when it passes through your mind, right, if what, if what you need to do is, is your mind exercising your will to control your body, right, that if you can be, your body can be subdued through harsh treatment, then you could have a cure to the sin problem that you have. You could have a cure to the sinful impulses that you have. And you see this in all sorts of religions throughout human history. That if you're just severe enough in your observance of hash marks, you can draw those lines tighter and tighter and tighter and tighter away from the sidelines. Then you can deal with the sin problem. But you know what? You know what? You can put as many internet filters as you can possibly imagine, and it will never cure the problem of lust in the human heart. Because the flesh, our self-exerted attempts to subdue our sinful impulses, the flesh is powerless against the flesh. Fourth, Fourth, the Apostle Paul says, not only is the flesh powerless against the flesh, but he says, you have died to that particular measuring rod that the world uses. In verse 20, he, we read, if, if with Christ you died to the elemental spirit of the world, why is if you were still alive in the world do you submit to regulations? That word submit has the sense of being dictated to or taking orders from. In other words, why do you keep marching in step with the orders that are coming from worldly wisdom, worldly opinions, worldly philosophy, worldly instructions? His point, rather, is that believers, they no longer count the world as their true home or as the place that dictates who they are or how they are to live because they've died with Christ and they're free from those elements of the world. So we no longer belong to the world. The world no longer rules over us. So why then would we continue to allow the world to dictate to us through their conceptions, through their opinions, through their practices that are powerless against our true enemy? Fifth and finally, listen, I want to tell you there is no Growth. There is no maturation but by grace. In verse 19, Paul, he contrasts the false teacher's approach to maturity with the Christian approach to maturity. He says that the false teachers are puffed up with pride, speaking often in detail about their visions, worshiping angelic beings, insisting on ascetic practices, drawing the lines tighter and tighter. And he says in verse 16, they're passing judgment on Christians 
with regard to what they eat and what they drink and what they touch and what they taste and what they hold and what they handle and what religious days they observe. But they are not connected to the head. These false teachers are not connected to the head. And who is the head, church? Jesus. Is Jesus. Paul says that none of their visions, none of their angelic worship, none of their harsh treatment of the body, none of their prideful boast are the path to maturity. None of that. He says rather staying connected to the head is the path to maturity. Because being connected to the head, who is the head of the whole body, right, from which the ligaments and tendons and muscles develop and strengthen, and then they experience, what does he say, a growth that is from their own self-effort? That's not what it says. They experience a growth that is from God, that is a gift of His grace as we remain connected to Christ, nourished and knit together. Listen, let me say it this way. Our maturity is a gift of God's grace. It is not a wage of our works. That as we stay connected to the head who is Christ, God is working by the power of His Holy Spirit to bring us to maturity, to give us growth in Christ. And so if, me, if we measure maturity by growth in grace, and let me just say this as we close this morning, church, I want to call us to grow in grace. Because listen, you're, huh. Stanley has said it this way, and it wasn't original to him. I don't know where he got it from. You can ask him later. Um, but listen, I think it may have been Dallas Wheeler. Dallas Wheeler probably didn't originate it either. It probably came from somewhere else. That's just how all good sayings are through the history of the church, right? But he says it's this is that grace is not opposed to effort, but it is opposed to earning. It's opposed to earning. And so as we think about our own maturity, we are locked, stock, and barrel opposed to our maturity being a wage that we've earned on account of our works or our effort. But we fully embrace our effort in the process. We fully embrace our effort in the process. And so whenever somebody says, hey, we ought to read the Bible, right? That is, it's not a hash mark, okay? That's discipleship. (laughs) When the Bible calls us to pray, that's not a hash mark, that's discipleship, that's obedience to God's command. When the Bible says, forsake not the assembling of yourselves together, go to church and fellowship with God's people, that's not a hash mark, that's discipleship, that's obedience to God's command. And to do all those things, we have to put forth effort. We have to order our lives around them. So we're not, saying we're, we're not saying we're opposed to effort, we're just opposed to earning. That as we do those things, that the growth that we experience is coming from God. It's a gift of His grace as we mature in our faith. So grow in it. Grow in grace. As we talk about this, let me just say a word to a couple different types of people who might be in the room this morning. First of all, to those who have stern and severe consciences. You know who you are, 
right? We tend to be the people who are rather type A, okay? Rather strung tight, right? We tend to draw the lines tighter and tighter in order to maintain control because that's what type A people do. They like, they love control, right? So for those with stern and severe consciences, let me just say a word that comes right out of this text about growing in grace. Do not pass judgment on others based upon human principles and teachings. Don't be the one to disqualify someone else on the basis of what may be a wise hash mark for you, but as you grow in grace and maturity, that you not only grow in grace before the Lord, but in graciousness towards others. If that's you with a stern and severe conscience, don't pass judgment on others based upon human principles, precepts, and teachings. On the flip side, there are some who may have searching and very sensitive consciences. And you know who you are, right? You, you perhaps live with this abiding sense of guilt. Or maybe even shame. There's always something wrong. You've always made a mistake. Listen, let me just say a word to you of grace. Let no one disqualify you based upon man-made regulations. You obey Christ. Stay within God's boundaries of human flourishing. They are large and wide and expansive all the way to the sidelines. Don't, if you cross over those, you ought to experience a degree of conviction and guilt. But if you're living within the sidelines, let no man-made regulation prick your conscience and cause you to feel an extreme sense of guilt or shame based upon a hash mark that someone else has drawn. Grow in grace. Exert effort. Reject earning. Read the scriptures. Pray. Serve others. Connect your life into the life of a local church. Go deep in fellowship and community. All of those are ways in which God works in our lives to give us growth. Measure your maturity by obedience to God's commands, not by submission to man-made regulations. And listen, let me say finally, measure your maturity, not by the outward regulations you keep, but by the inner fruit you are bearing. If you want a good measuring rod for your maturity in the faith, it's the fruit of the Spirit. Am I more loving today than I was six months ago? Do I experience more joy today, even in the midst of trial and tribulation, than I did a year ago? Am I more at peace now? than I was in my 20s. Some of you are like, I'm in my 20s, in your teens. Am I more patient with those who are around me and with situations and circumstances that I find myself in in life today than I was previously? Am I more kind in my words and gentle in my actions towards others now, today, than I was in my past? 
to exhibit a greater degree of self-control and less impulsiveness in my life. See, these are inner fruit that the Holy Spirit is bearing. As we put forth effort, and we hear from God in His Word, and we speak to God in prayer, and we fellowship with God's people in the church, He's at work. But don't measure your maturity. If I can borrow an image from the, the church that I came to faith in that probably many of you have experienced. Whenever you went to church on Sunday morning, they had those offering envelopes in the pew back right, right in front of you. And on that offering envelope, there were some check boxes. Some of you remember those, right? I read my Bible this week, check. Right? I prayed this week, check. I went to Bible study this week, check. Right? I, I served this week, check. Right? You had all these check boxes, right? Do not measure your growth based upon what you're earning by your outward regulations, but by the work that God is doing in your soul as He bears the fruit of His Holy Spirit. That's how you measure maturity. All these things are pathways we put forth effort in. But at the end of the day, we stand back when we see the fruit of the Spirit being born more in us today than it was yesterday, and oftentimes other people around us see that before we can. We don't stand back and go, look at what I've earned. We stand back and say, look what God has done. Let's pray together. <clears throat> Father, our tendency as human beings is to want to go beyond what you have said or stop short of what you have said. And that tendency oftentimes to go beyond what you have said may come from good intentions, but it has bad outcomes. Father, for those who have certain hash marks in place in their lives for their own protection and the protection of those that they love, may they walk in obedience to you as you have convicted their conscience to do. But help us not to apply those hash marks to other people who are free to run within the boundaries, the expansive boundaries of the sidelines that you've created. And may we measure our maturity by growth and grace. May you remind us continually that Jesus is the fullness, that Jesus is the substance, that we've died with Him to this measuring rod of outward regulations. So might we live with Him by your, the power of your Holy Spirit as He bears His fruit in our lives. May we as individuals and corporately as a church bear more of this fruit today than we did yesterday and more tomorrow than we do today. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, this is Pastor Shannon, and I want to thank you for tuning in today. I trust that the Lord has spoken to you through His Word, and if you don't know Jesus as your Savior, 
I invite you to trust him today. If you have questions about what that means, reach out to us through our website, RedeemerRC.com, and one of our pastors will be in touch. In addition, if you would like to partner with Redeemer in her mission to share, shape, and send, you can support our ministry by visiting RedeemerRC.com forward slash give. Now, this podcast is not intended to replace your active participation in the life of a local church, but tune in next week as we continue to lift high the name of Jesus through every paragraph, passage, and page of the Bible.